You're listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochchurch.sg. The real value of life that we're going to cover. And John chapter 10, verse 7 says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, see, Jesus came really to earth to redefine what we understand about what it means to live in general, but certainly life. Because if I were to ask anybody what their definition of life is, what is life, you would get all kinds of different responses depending on each individual. What is, what is living would be another. What is living to you? And we have expressions like living it up and the good life, and these things that we use about what life is as good. But there's a value system that God has, and then there's a value system that man has. And we've talked a lot about this recently, but Jesus very specifically mentions what life means to him and what he expects of us concerning our estimate of what life is, what is the value of life. He said he wants to give us life. Then we can say, okay, you said you would give us life and that we would have it more abundantly. And we get excited about that because we think of all the things that we call the value of life. We call living. Life more abundantly means that therefore I will be able to spend all my time doing the things that make me happy, enjoying my life. Life more abundantly means I'll be able to go out and just have vacations or all these exciting times. I'll have all the substances, all the things I want. And there's some people have that idea. But Jesus' perspective of life, what he calls life, is not exactly what most people consider life to be. So when he says that he's come to give us life and to have it more abundantly, we need to understand what, what his opinion is about life. What life is to him. Because it's quite different. So he came to redefine things. Life is a concept. Defined, uh, this is a dictionary definition, it means the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, including the capacity of growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. That That's just what you find in the dictionary if you look it up. But Jesus came from heaven to change the way we see all this. And he came to tell us life is not simply what biologically may be the things of this earth, but in fact he redirects the disciples when, when they do not understand. Just this morning I was teaching the Chinese congregation a message that we had this past week about some correction that came because John had forbidden the man that was casting out demons. He said that you should not do that, and Jesus was angry about that. Jesus was always, and that's John. John was close and intimate with God, but he made a mistake and Jesus had to correct him. In fact, the Gospels are full of stories of Jesus correcting errors that systematically and continuously would come out of the mouths of his disciples. And that is really what we look at when we look at the Gospels. What can we learn from our mistakes 
because we are the disciples of Christ. And it's interesting that after two and a half years, even three years with Jesus, the disciples still kept making some grave errors, some misunderstandings of kingdom principles. And when they would, he would bring correction. Sometimes individuals would separate him to talk to him, and then when that would happen, he would, in the rebuke, bring everybody together because it was an object lesson. So little by little, he was finding error in each of his disciples and bringing it to the surface, wanting to know their opinion so that he could help them with it. And he does that with us. Amen? That's, that's what the Word of God does. We have the Bible for that. As we go around thinking what we think, what we've been conditioned to, to expect about all things, including life, but then we read the Bible. And it begins to redefine our understanding of existence. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And all of this is really in preparation for our departure from this world as we move to the next life, real life, which is eternal life in heaven. But we're still living life here on earth. So I'm talking not about supernatural, spiritual life that will one day be in the sweet by and by in heaven. But I'm talking about what do we do with our life right here in this moment called a vapor in the Bible that is here today and gone tomorrow because time is short. And so God is looking at us and He wants us to understand. So, so in this message, I want us to look at a moment where Jesus taught His disciples about the meaning and value of life from His perspective. We're going to see seven things about the value of life. Let's start with number one. Life comes through suffering. Nobody likes to hear this, but it is 100% biblical. And there is no other definition. It says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and after three days rise again. Now here he's beginning by telling his disciples a very uh, discouraging, apparently, seemingly this would be a discouraging thing to tell anybody. If I told you, well, you know, I must go to some place or I will be handed over to people and they will kill me. Well, that's a negative thing. Nobody wants that someone they love suffer at all. Certainly not any pain, but death is an extreme, and so here, this is what he's telling his dear disciples that love him, that, well, you know, the Son of Man must, he has to, it is needful for him to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And actually, this is, uh, in here you see the fact that life comes through suffering. Jesus is painting this picture to begin with, and you see that the way up is down. I always say that. And there's four things there. It says suffering, rejection, death, and then by that time, you even miss sight of the fact that resurrection is last. Resurrection, another way of saying resurrection is glorification, exaltation. Jesus, the same one that came down to earth, was highly exalted. How? By the resurrection. Uh, his suffering, his rejection, and his death did very little to help us. It's his resurrection that accomplished everything. You understand if he had not risen, then it would be a whole different story. But the resurrection power, the power of the exaltation, is where God's energy is released to transform, to change, of course, 
We know that in His suffering, He took our pain and our suffering and our anguish. He was rejected for us and He died for us. But His resurrection is the most important thing. That is the goal. But this is a path. You will never experience resurrection if you're not willing to suffer. You will never experience resurrection or exaltation or promotion in real life if you're not willing to be rejected and if you're not willing to die. Die to self. Maybe even die physically. I don't know. But you have to at least be willing to whatever the cost, I will serve you, Lord. But this death can also be a metaphorical example. Like Paul said, I die daily. He was not speaking literally that every day Paul got up, he died somehow, and they'd have to come find his corpse in his bedroom and raise him every day. Of course, he was using it as an analogy. He says, I die daily. I must die, he said. So that means dying to self, dying to your old man. Dying to your old man means the man that was controlled by you versus what we give to God. There is a way up in the kingdom, but that way up is down through this process. This is just like the basic principle of our life in Christ. So he tells his disciples this. And it's not good news. His disciples are not going to be excited about this. But Jesus was not trying to, number two, Jesus is not hiding the truth. He's telling them outright. It says he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, he spoke plainly means he spoke openly and clearly. Up to this point, it also means that he had been speaking in, in metaphors, allegories. He was mentioning it in parables. He said it a few times along the way, but they never really got it. Because they had a different vision of what was supposed to take place in the ministry of Jesus. Their agenda, that is the agenda of John, Peter, Andrew, all those guys, the sons of thunder, these zealots that were extremists and wanted to overthrow the Romans, they knew for a fact, according to the prophecies, that this Jesus would become a military leader and he would lead them with the same power that he was healing the sick and raising the dead. He would, de he would destroy the enemy and he would liberate Jerusalem. That They were literally waiting for that the whole time. And they expected that. Because that was their agenda, that was their perspective, that was their vision. In fact, if you separated one of them from Jesus during the time that he was training his disciples and said, Hey, Peter, so uh, what's, what's Jesus' vision? What's the agenda? You know, what's the plan? What's going to happen in the ministry of Jesus? I think they would have said something to that effect. Well, right now, you know, he's, he's peaceful. Right now, he's doing lots of loving things, but... There's a plan. You just wait and see. The time will come when he will be the great Messiah. He's gonna. He's just. He's just kind of like laying some foundation right now. But it's gonna be great. You'll see. I can't. I can't tell you anymore right now because it's. You know. It's. it's shh, don't tell anybody. You'll see. But I think they carried that in their heart. I think he could have asked any of the disciples, and they would have had basically the same opinion. That's why in that very moment that Jesus was about to be handed over, as he said, is about to happen, they had swords and clubs and said, is this enough? And he said, yes. <laughs> he thought it was true. And he, he ended up cutting off, you know, Peter cut off Malchus's ear, and he said, whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. Because they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to do until after. But here he's telling them plainly, 
that he's going to die. Well, that does not quite match the plan that John and Peter and all of them had in mind. Peter especially is offended by this idea because that is not what he's been telling people. Now, he didn't hear the resurrection part. He just heard the death part because to him, so far, death is final. You die, you're dead. Jesus' death is nothing. He calls it sleep because he sees things from a different perspective. And he was coming to cause us to think differently. But Peter's not quite there yet, nor any of the disciples. Peter took him aside when he heard this, and he rebuked him. And when he says he took him aside, it means he separated him from the other disciples. He didn't want to embarrass Jesus. But he knew at this point, finally, Jesus has gotten into some error because that is not consistent with the vision. And we need to walk out the vision. And so he took him to the side and spoke to him and said, Look, Jesus, I know, I know what you said, but that's not going to happen. It can't happen. Now, I want you to apply this to our personal life, right? We come to know Jesus. We accept Him as our Lord and our Savior. We believe in the atoning sacrifice of the cross. The blood washes us. We are free. We are saved. And we are now going to live our lives for God. And we create a vision. We make a plan. We have a strategy of what we're going to do to serve God but often those visions, those plans, those strategies are not consistent with what God plans for us. God has another path. And that path usually requires some type of death, some type of sacrifice, some type of pain that nobody wants. And it is common for us to want to avoid having to suffer in any way, shape, or form. That's Human logic, that's instinctual. We don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to go through painful things. And so Peter's not happy about it, and he rebukes Jesus. And, you know, Jesus was speaking open. You know, the, this is interesting because when someone speaks like this, when Jesus started speaking plainly or in a, a mature and straightforward recognition of the necessity of suffering as a path to exoneration, then... Peter was uncomfortable. But actually, this is an indication of true spiritual maturity. I hear people all the time talk about how great they're going to be. I remember in Bible school when we were young and we were in that in the school and every, we all at the break times in the sessions between classes, we had a little coffee place where we'd go get coffee right there on the school grounds. We'd go over there and there was always a pot of coffee and we just put you know some money in a little can and we had our coffee. and we, It was our break room and we would all talk about our visions and our plans and what was coming what we would do for Jesus. And it's amazing how every one of us was Billy Graham. Because I, I didn't know how it would be possible. But everyone knew without a doubt that we were Reinhard Bunker, that we were Billy Graham, and that we were going to go out there and do, you know, kind of like, kind of like Reinhard Bunker. That's kind of like seeing I'm going to go out there and do that. That's, that's wild, isn't it? That's like, that's like um, you know, finding some expert violinist you know, Itzhak Perlman, and saying, yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to play like Itzhak Perlman does. And then you don't know who that is. He's one of the greatest violinists that ever lived. And for you to say that is ridiculous. Because it's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of training and practicing. It's arduous to get to that point. What's well, like that in ministry? And the only way is through suffering. Only through much tribulation can we even enter the kingdom of God. Let alone become something. Jesus was fully aware of this 
He didn't have a problem with it. He accepted it from the beginning. As soon as the revelation came to him that he was this sacrifice, which I don't think he truly understood until later when the Holy Spirit came to him. Then his conscience, his God conscience, was activated by the Spirit of God descending upon him. Then he started operating in his full understanding. He knew from the beginning that he was a sacrifice, that he was a lamb, the lamb of God who was sent to die. And he was okay with that. He wasn't crazy. He didn't want to die. We see him wrestling with it in the garden. And if it's possible that this cup passed, but he knew and accepted it. Now he's speaking plainly about it and openly because that is a sign of spiritual maturity. When I hear somebody speaking opposite of this, I know that they are immature in Christ. They don't understand how it works yet. When all they're speaking is, is wonders and greatness and how God is so wonderful and He is, but they talk about how great they are and what they're going to do. I know they are not tempered. They're not tried. They've not been through anything yet. They lack experience. Sometimes they, you have a, you know, a new uh, Christian or a new uh, worker in, in the body. They will graduate or something Bible school and they go out on a little missions trip. You know, they spend like five days there and then they come back and they conquered that nation as far as they're concerned. And they, that nation is now set free and they come back so excited and they have their PowerPoint and their pictures and they forced a bunch of people to say a prayer with them and they took pictures of that. And, you know, those awkward pictures where their hands are on people's heads and the people are like, you know, they just pray, they've got the camera, you know, take the picture. And there's a lot of photo ops on the mission field. People do that. And they come back and they pin that on their wall. And they may make several trips like that and somehow believe that that qualifies them. They haven't really been through the process yet. So to them, that work is glorious. It's wonderful. I, I, I fell into that trap in my early years as a missionary. I really thought that, wow, because I went on missions trips. And I would go, and in that week, you know, we would paint orphanages and orphans if they got in the way. We would do whatever had to be done. We would feed the poor. We would do these projects and these programs, and it was great. And then at the end of that week, we would go back crying, and, you know, Lord, I will do anything for you. And go back and we all pray at the church together and plan the next mission trip. And as long as I was doing that, I had this missions thing licked. I know, I, this is great. But man, then I moved to the mission field. And, but something happened on day 21. When I crossed day 21, psychologically they say it takes 21 days to form a habit. Uh, it also takes the same to break a habit. And my habit of being an American me died on the 21st day, and I went in the culture shop, and I realized things were not like I thought they were going to be. My vision didn't work the way I thought it was going to work, then it started becoming difficult, and I got sick, then I got sick again. I had multiple sicknesses and problems, and I couldn't eat the food anymore. I hated the food. I, I At one point, this is in Mexico at the time, the smell of Mexican food would immediately cause me to throw up. I mean, just the smell of it, because you have to know when, when you pass a certain time, your body, you see, you can make your body visit a place for a few days. It'll deal with it. You get a little rumbly in your tummy, and you know, you maybe spend a few more minutes on the toilet than you expected, but you get past it. But three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, two months, three months, your body just quits. It just shuts down and says, nope. 
I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to take food. I'm not going to process it. I don't even know what you're putting in me. Your body gets angry at you, and it affects your mind, your heart. And those who've been through my program, you know, I teach a lot about culture shock. I didn't expect it entirely. But that now, then, I think about doing missions work. What do I want to do? Where I want to? I, I know that only through much tribulation. There's no way you can do anything without suffering. Don't think it's going to be a good time. But people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that. And just like Peter, they take, they take that thought aside of the necessity of suffering and they rebuke it. They even say, you know, get behind me, Satan. Or I rebuke you. They say that to the idea of suffering. But actually, Jesus is just the opposite. So Jesus starts speaking this, and really that's because he was mature, and he was trying to help Peter to mature. Peter didn't understand yet. So we see number three, human concerns are not God's concerns, and that's the issue. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, now get the picture, Peter trying to you know, protect the dignity of the Messiah, brought him to the side, just, that's, we're not going to let that happen. Jesus, Jesus is like, oh, really? Okay. And he turned and brought it and made it public and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter in front of them all and said, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, he said this because human concerns are not God's concerns. Now, we have a lot of concerns about a lot of things that are human. Now, we're going to start getting into the understanding of the different perspectives of what life is and what Jesus calls life and then what we might call life. Because often what we call life is oriented to the concerns of humans. But what Jesus called life was strictly, entirely, and only oriented to the concerns of God. Now that's easier said than done. We can say, my life is for God, and only for God. But really, that's just lip service until you've truly been tried. And that trial is not easy. But God is with us. He protects us. He says Satan wants to sift us like wheat, but he's praying for us. He's going to walk us through it. And this is exactly what he's doing with Peter. So we see that Jesus uh, speaks openly about this to him and the necessity of his passion and suffering and being met with a reprimand from Peter. Jesus then invites the entire clan to learn from this lesson. He addresses the satanic principle in an open format to expose the perversion of truth. That's why he calls it satanic. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's calling the concept, the principle, and the idea that's in operation. This concept of there being something more important than the will of God, and that is the will of man. The concerns of God versus the concerns of man. And that's why he defines it. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of the mere human concerns. And that's exactly what was going on. So human concerns equal what? Self-preservation. And the concerns of God equal self-sacrifice. So really it's one or the other. We either preserve ourselves, which is what Peter wants to do. Peter believes in a system to keep yourself safe, to keep yourself from all harm. I'm not talking about wildly running out and doing something stupid and jumping from building to building and, and you know trying to survive these things. Don't, don't be foolish with your life. It also says don't tempt the Lord your God. 
But I'm talking about in the line of service to God and doing things that you might run into some trouble. You might be hurt. You might suffer, be rejected, die. There'll be a resurrection, but those things we saw is what Jesus understood. But Peter's not thinking that way, so his concerns are human, naturally. Most of the time, honestly, that's our concerns. Because that's what our concerns are human concerns. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? How good do we look? How's my hair? You know, these things about us will often drive us, and that's okay that you take care of yourself, but there's a greater concern, and that is the concern of God. In this particular case, Peter was not looking to protect Jesus as much as he was looking to protect life as he understood it, including his life, because his agenda was different, and it diverged from what Jesus was planning on doing. So human concerns equal self-preservation, whereas God concerns equal self-sacrifice, because that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Now, that's okay. You might think, well, you know, that's good for Jesus because uh, Jesus, he was the sacrifice. And really, I could go the line of thinking, well, you know, Jesus suffered so that I wouldn't have to suffer. Jesus took my sins and the punishment of my sins into himself so that I wouldn't have to pay that price. He paid the price for me, and so therefore I get to walk in the victory and live a life without any problems or trouble because Jesus took all that trouble for me. And that sounds good on the outside, but it's just not Bible, not when you really look at it. Number four, we must deny ourselves. In verse 34, he continues, it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Now, understand what's going on. Get the picture here. Peter, Jesus, come here. I gotta talk to you. They're not gonna, this is not going to happen, man. And, and Jesus said, okay, Peter, come here. I want to I tell you something. Hey, guys, listen. Get behind me, Satan. You have only man's concerns. You're not concerned about the things of God. Now, he called the crowd to him. Now, he takes the disciples and says, you know what? Everybody needs to hear this lesson. Okay, everybody, gather around, gather around. And now crowds of people are gathering. There's Peter with his head hanging low, embarrassed because he's just been branded Satan. And there's the other disciples scared to make a move because they were thinking the same thing. But they're not, they, they, they knew Jesus before reading people's minds. So they know they, they thought the same. They, didn't, they weren't as bold as Peter. Peter took the initiative to step up and do something about it. And they were glad. Peter also is the only guy that stepped out of the boat. So Peter was a first timer. He did everything. But they knew they, they had the same mentality. Now he calls the whole crowd together because I think he perceived, you know what, everybody's got this wrong. So he calls them together, calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, look, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So he addresses a specific group of people. He says, those who truly want to become his disciple. He says, whoever... We ask the question, whoever wants a donut, stand in line. That would be anybody that's hungry for a donut, you come up, that be, that's because you want a donut. If it's a Krispy Kreme donut, the line will be longer. And I will say, if you would like a donut, here come, get the, and people would queue, especially free donut. People queue for things that cost money here in Singapore. I've seen hundreds of people queue for a simple baked potato at Don Don Donkey, so anything's going to happen, you know, that people... So if, if I... Whoever wants something, but he's saying whoever wants to be my disciple, 
And that's a good question. Do we want to be his disciple? They had to think in the crowd, I don't know, do I want to be his disciple? Peter's afraid to answer at all. Peter does not know what to think now. Because now the definition of what it means to be a disciple is drastically taking a left turn. Because a, a disciple was following the Messiah into the conquests the overthrow of the Romans and the occupation of them in Jerusalem and a mighty victory where they would all be on this what they thought were physical earthly thrones that they would sit on and they're thinking these analogies that he gave these parables were actually them politically ruling in Jerusalem in their bodies in this life they totally missed this they missed it entirely and that's why this makes no sense. You can't die. We haven't sat on the thrones yet. You know, he, they're thinking wrongly. And so whoever wants to be my disciples, anybody wants to be my disciple. It's really simple. Uh, and this is really the one wanting to be a disciple must deny self. What does that mean, deny self? That means no longer count yourself as a factor in the decision-making process. Deny yourself. No longer pay attention. It'd be like if you and I are going out to eat and we don't know where we're going to eat and we need to make a decision about that, to deny myself will simply not tell you anything about what I want. Even though I want that nice braised pig trotter and the delicious sauce, you know, I want that that wonderful laksa or whatever it is. I know this perfect place. You know, I'm, I have this in my mind and you're not quite sure, but if I defer to you, if I deny myself, I'm not going to mention that at all. I'm going to let you choose whatever you want. And you make the choice and I'll happily go along with that. That's all this means. To deny yourself. Why? Because Peter was a fisherman. They were all, they had other positions. Matthew was a tax collector. They had all these things, but they denied themselves to be able to, to go on and be what they needed to be in Christ. They were on the right path. There were others that could not. The rich young ruler couldn't deny himself. It was because his self was too rich. He had too much stuff connected to himself. So he couldn't deny that. So he went sadly away, and Jesus was sad for him because he loved him. But that's the first step. Second is take up the cross. Now, what is a cross? Well, there's nothing positive about a cross. There's nothing comfortable about a cross. A cross is not a velvet-lined couch that you lay on and, and rest and take nap. No, a, a cross is the most horrific device of torture ever created. To have, it's a cruel and horrible thing upon which you nail the person to slowly tear them apart and suffocate them over hours to create the maximum amount of anguish. There's nothing nice about that. And Jesus said, oh, I got one of those for you. First, give up everything you want. No, 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 no. you don't need that? No, 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 no. No, no trotter, no lobster, no. You, we're going to do what I want to do? Yes, sir. Okay, and, and I got a cross for you. Here you go. And that's, that's not exciting. See, now, Peter at this point is thinking, this is really gone south, this whole thing. His, his, his vision of ascending up to the greatness in the realms of Israel has now become this slippery slope of despair. It's getting lower. It's involving torture mechanisms and none, nothing you get. No, Peter, you get nothing out of this. You're going to go this way. 
and you follow me. It's finally what he says there. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, now think about the question. Do you want to be his disciple? Because that's what this means. Being a disciple is not just having your name on a roll in a nice little laminated curriculum book that you write your name in so that you don't lose it with other people. It's not your little book sack and your hours that you spend in your Bible school. It's not having to do your little outlines and hand them in to the teacher. None of those are shaped like a cross. You know, that, that thing, this is easy stuff. There's a lot more to it than that. A disciple... Disciple goes past you enjoying the preaching. The disciple is someone that goes beyond uh, a good worship session. The disciple is someone who remains when there is no good worship going on, where there where there is no good message being preached, where it's a hard lesson and it's difficult, and you're in pain and you're miserable and you're nailed there hanging. And all you want to do is get unnailed. And, but you're a disciple, so you have to remain there with these holes in you, suffering this pain. Nobody wants to do this. I think I spend more time trying to talk people out of going into the ministry than going into the ministry. Because I don't want them to be deceived to think it's this, you know, party. This great time we're going to have. Now... I won't tell you that everything I've gone through thus far is not is not amazing and worth it. It's that's a given. I would not trade everything I've been through thus far for anything, anything, because it is exactly why I am what I am today and have what I have. The anointing on my ministry comes from those nails, that cross, and my dead will. That's where the Spirit comes from. That's where His blessing comes from. That's where the benefits of eternity come from. Becoming a real disciple. And so I follow Him whether I like it or not. And Jesus is fond of leading me into horrible places. All because He loves me. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. So now, go back to Peter. In that circle, been branded Satan. He's got eleven other disciples staring at him. Like, hey, shoot, get Russia. And then there's a big crowd around there, and Jesus is, is addressing them with uh, self-denial. Crosses, follow me. You come, follow me. Now he puts this out there because he wants to know how serious are these people. And this is really where I see Jesus make the statement of the true value of life. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So saving your life for yourself is how to lose it. But losing your life for Jesus is how to save it. It's very simple. This is what Jesus is teaching. This is the whole object lesson that Jesus was trying to explain to them. Look, you have a life. You like your life. You call it life and you're living it and you want to save it for what? What are you doing with it? Well, for me. For myself. For my desires. For my things. So I'm going to save 
that far myself. Well, he says you can do that, but that's how you lose it. That's scary, isn't it? However, losing your life, that is what you want, what you desire, what you plan, what you... Now, I'm not, it's not, don't worry, I'm going to balance this out in a second. Losing your life for Jesus is how to save it. Now, Jesus made these kind of statements alarmingly. Very disturbing information. And he says it to the crowd, and now they're perplexed. Jesus was often, by the way, filtering out crowds just so that he would not waste his time with people playing games. And that's really what good preaching does. That's why we have a tiny church. Because not many people can hang around in this level of preaching. And I just, I can't do any, I can't water it down. I've tried through the years. I have tried, by the way. I've tried very hard to just be loving and only say love, love messages and prosperity and happiness. And I, I've really worked hard at that. I just, I just can't sleep at night when I do that. I feel fake. I feel unbiblical. I know too much of the Bible. Maybe if I could go back and not learn as much Bible, it would be easier for me to do that. But saving our life for ourselves is how we lose it. And losing our life for Jesus is how to save it. Jesus later says, oh, don't worry. Because Peter said, well, man, we left everything. Remember he said that? He said, look, don't worry. Don't worry, I got you. Because whatever you gave up, whatever you did lose, that's why you will save it. You lose it for me. I have a lot more. I have a I have hundred times what you give up. I got stuff. Don't worry about it. All you and it really comes down to one simple thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If that's first, then all these other things will be given to you. But not like you want it. And this is the thing. I, I specifically want things, but he doesn't give me exactly what I want. He gives me what I need. And what I need is better than what I want, but I'm too stupid to know that beforehand. And I have everything. Believe me, I have everything. He has given me things. I, I once had a friend who was a, a prophetic giver. Have you ever a prophetic giver? A person that gives you things that seem like you do not need them at all, but he did it by direction of the Spirit. I had a guy that was so good at this. He would take me to a major uh, retail store in, when I would visit him in America, and I would be driving down to Mexico to the mission field. He would walk me through, down every aisle, go up and down every aisle, be led by the Holy Spirit, just grabbing things and throwing them in the basket. Uh, no choice, no, I, I didn't... I, he didn't ask what I wanted. He just said, "Yeah, you're gonna need this." And he was country, so he had that. You're gonna need one of these. You're gonna, you, you, the brother Steve, you need one of these. And he put that. Just, I'm like, okay, great. Why do I? I don't, I don't need that. And he put all these things in there, run through the whole store, to get out and check out, pay for it all, put it in the back of my pickup truck, and say, "You need that, huh? Need that?" Uh, one time, but everything, everything he ever gave me. I desperately needed within the period of just some months after. Like, I would weep sometimes. Wow, how could he have done that? Because he was a prophetic giver. It was amazing. I've never seen anybody with a gift quite like it. I'll give you an example. One time, I'm in the pickup truck, and he gives me a big old giant tarp, you know, a waterproof tarp with rope to tie it down. Well, I had a hard shell camper on my truck with a rubber sealed a uh, latch that closed, it was airtight. The thing was like an apartment. We had a mattress in there. We could sleep in there, close it all down. It was a nice truck. 
and and I thought I don't need it. I'm not one. I'm going to need a tarp for. He said, "Well, you never know." So you know, okay. I drive from there. The very next place I go to, somebody says, "Oh, the Lord wanted me to give you. Get, wanted me to give you this couch, a beautiful couch, for me to take, and you really nice one, and uh, fine quality." And I said, "Oh, okay." And I put it in the truck, and I tried to close, and it wouldn't close because the couch was too long. And I thought, it's okay, we'll just leave it open. So I'm driving down the road, and as I'm going suddenly up in the highway ahead, and I still have miles and miles to go, I see the black storm clouds. And just the first drops hit the window, bloop, bloop, I pulled over under a flyover, an overpass in the, in the dry, and, and, I, and I thought, the couch is going to get wet. And no, it's not. I have a tarp. And I went and got the tarp and covered it. And you know, this is what I'm saying. God's able to meet your need. God's going to take care of you. It's, this isn't, he doesn't want you to be reduced to pathetic squalor, never have anything with tattered rags, starving with your ribs showing, and I'm a servant of Jesus, and you're dying. You have, you know, rickets and holes in your face. And I can tell he's a disciple, and that's not what he wants. He just don't. He doesn't want you to be in charge. It's the bottom line. It's a control issue. He just wants control. Because he knows better than you know. He knows so much. His thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. His plans for you. He's not even going to tell you. Because if he told you, you're going to mess him up anyway. So he hides it all from you. He just wants you to follow and trust him. He knows how to take care of you. And it's so funny because we try to fill this hole. We try to substitute this, but number six, there's no substitute. Jesus says to the people who are thinking, you know, well, maybe I can do something to, to substitute. What can I give? And now Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now you think of this in context, what he said, you can gain the whole world through the principles of self-preservation, acquiring things for yourself, you understand, getting nice things, always letting yourself be the focus, yourself. I was watching this documentary last night on Netflix about some of the most beautiful homes in the world, and this astounding home built in New Mexico in the desert out of gorgeous composite stone they built it. it it is one of the prettiest houses I've ever seen in my life and they were talking about the people who made it they spent all their money all they had to build this house out in the desert in this beautiful location it won awards and architectural digest I mean it's just amazing so that they could retire there and die and I realized gosh that was the sum total of what that was just all of that for what? For themselves to go and die. And I felt a loneliness inside for them. I thought the house was beautiful until they said that. Then I thought, that's a big tomb. It's a tomb. How many tombs are out there right now? Where people have, have gained the whole world through their careful self-preservation and planning and strategies to make sure that everything, they even build extra barns so that they will be able to keep the amassed goods there, Jesus said. And then he says, oh fool, your life is required of you now. This is, this 
That's what he says. What does it matter? You gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now he's showing you the difference between our definition of life and living and his definition of life and living. Life for him is not what we have. Life for him is not what we acquire. Life for him is what we give up. Life for him is the sacrifice. And that life produces everything. And that's what he's required. And nothing can take its place. You can't do something else. And I know a lot of people who, who have tried that God has... I've seen God call people, and I heard Keith Green say a long time ago, God can't cash out-of-state checks in heaven. Where some people have tried to... Like God called them to go to the mission field or called them to do something for Him, but they didn't. And instead, they just like gave a certain sum of money or they donated some things that, that's, that doesn't count. Because that's God doesn't value that stuff. When we take up an offering, God's not thinking, you better give, I'm worried about paying the bills up here. You better put more in the offering. God's not concerned. God doesn't, doesn't need that money. That money's all about earthly things, and it's needed. Jesus didn't really care about the money, and when he needed it, he could just have a fish come with a coin in its mouth. He, everything was already, already taken care of. It wasn't a big issue, but he did pay very close attention to the money in the widow's hand, those little widow's mites. It was all she had. He he saw because it wasn't really the substance. It's it's your attachment to the substance. You lack one thing. Go and sell everything. Give it to the poor. And he couldn't do it. So what does it matter? You gain the whole world. You have all these things, but you forfeit your soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So there's no substitute for that. And what is the value of life? So the question really that that must be answered is from one of, or two different perspectives. You know, like a disciple, remember he said, you want to be a, a real disciple? Do you truly want to be my disciple? A disciple sees his life as spiritual, or soul, it's that. What is the value of life? A disciple sees life as spirit and soul. Bottom line. Whereas a human concerned person, and that's the whole issue here, is God's concerns, God is spirit. God is love, God is light, God is spirit. And he must be worshipped in spirit and truth. The only thing he connects to is spiritual things. And so a disciple of God through Jesus is spiritually minded and only sees spirit. Everything else is secondary. But a human concerned person sees his life as physical. And that's where Jesus is inviting us to change entirely our perspectives. I have a dear friend of mine that just passed away within the last 24 hours, I think it is. He is a great and a wonderful man. His name um, was uh, Green. His last name was Green. So Jason Green. Great man of God. I was there and, and met him and helped. He's when he gave, he wrote a $1 million check to Reinhard Bunke's ministry. He did, I mean, that's just a fraction of what that man did for so many people, so much sacrifice. And he was very wealthy. And with all he had, he cancer still took him and all he did and you know even though that's heartbreaking that's just a physical life even cancer all whatever the case of course everybody prayed and we all believed and hoped but he slowly faded away and he died in spite of all that he did now somebody might get bitter and say but he did all those things didn't he deserve more well, well, no. See, that's that's natural. Once again, that's speaking from someone from human concerns. Gosh, 
He's going to heaven to a place where all that he's done all these years is waiting for him. He's already there. I can imagine how happy he is now. He's there. And his wife wrote an amazing post on Facebook. Just, just gorgeous words about him and what he's done. And, and there are hundreds of us that are, that are commenting. It's interesting in this day and age, obituaries are Facebook. Because that's the age we live in. You know, this is a, this is the age of social media. But the words, I just, I wept looking through a lot of the words. They're beautiful about what he's done and what he is. But it's another example. He, he, the physical things didn't matter. What does it matter how much he had, what he had? And they had a lot. And he made a lot. He was a, he was a very, very good businessman. He always took very good care. I also went through some horrible times in his life. But he's always serving, always loving. Because he was an example of a man that put the kingdom first and God blessed him to the point of being multimillionaire. Really blessed him and prospered. But he never did not put God first. Always put him first. God doesn't, like I said, God doesn't want you to be a pauper. He just wants you to put him first. And that we always see, as a disciple, we see our life as spiritual and not physical. Your eyes are on the physical. You've missed the whole point entirely. So self-preservation is connected to that. So we have this mentality. We change. And number seven, we are not ashamed. It says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words. Now, what words? He just said them. In other words, he just taught something so radically different to the earthly concept of what value is, of what life is, that certainly people were scratching their heads saying, I don't know about this. And Jesus always preached messages that made people say, oh, I don't know. I think the top of that list would be, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. What? Certainly speaking figuratively. No. Unless you really eat my flesh and really drink my blood. He said it like that just, just to see how far he could push them. And it, it irritated them and they left. They couldn't handle it. Of course he was speaking spiritual words. And he told the disciples that later, look, these are spiritual words. Spiritual words. And, and that's... Why Jesus was told by Peter, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the ones with the spiritual word. That's what he said. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, that I even said this, that if you save your life, you lose it. If you can have this concept and believe it, not be ashamed of it in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man, if you're ashamed of that, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. And this is really the case here is that we're not ashamed because we're not we are going to say and believe what Jesus said. We accept it. But instinctually, we feel ashamed when we do not match the status quo. In other words, as an opinion of the society, we're surrounded by people living for themselves. Really, that's the way it is. Everybody's all about themselves. This is the most narcissistic age we've ever witnessed with the glorification of self through every selfie. I mean, constantly, all I see is people taking pictures of themselves, and I, and I take I take my fair uh, portion of pictures of myself. We all do. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, we more than ever before, people are very worried about self and taking care of self, and the level of prosperity has risen too globally. People have so much stuff, so it's a great challenge when someone wants to accept what Jesus is really saying. But he's saying, don't be ashamed of these principles. Live them even though it's not popular. The social order of this world celebrates and recommends human concerns as wisdom 
and intelligent. This, this is wise. This is intelligent. When we speak of the concerns of God, this world will object, just as Peter did. And that's why he identified Peter's objection as carnal and wrong. You have the, that's the concerns of man. That's, that's coming from the devil. Because Lucifer, being the god of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, rules over people that have not had their minds change it. So that's the commonality of all people is, is what you have. In fact, I disappoint people so often when they ask me. They want to know, well, by the age of 50, I certainly should have some things provided for my family and for my retirement. I have not a thing. I have nothing. I own nothing. I don't have savings. I'm leaving the country for two weeks. I have $300 to my name. I don't have enough. I, I mean, I just have about enough to get to the airport. So what are you going to do? It doesn't matter. God will pay it. Not to mention I have rent coming, bills, even in my absence. What are you going to do? You don't have any money. I, I like, like this is going to be the first time in my life he doesn't provide everything. He always does. My greater concern is do the work of the Father. Just keep doing it. If you put that first, everything will be taken care of. And there, all these other people of this world would not do that. They're not comfortable with that, but I'm not ashamed to say it. So we should not be ashamed of Jesus and his words in this generation. We should speak them, live them in such a way, demonstratively and plainly, that it causes protests. We should have people rebuking us. In fact, if people are rebuking you and saying your thoughts are crazy, you can't do that, well, you know you're becoming a mature believer. That's how you know that you're acting like Jesus. They'll know because he's speaking madness. I have been called mad by many people. I've been seen crazy. In fact, if you can't be clinically found insane, you're not a disciple of Christ. Just by believing in God, you're clinically insane. So you might as well go all the way. <laughs> They're going to criticize you anyway. You know, you're trying to please people, this adulterous generation. You're trying to make them happy by just exposing them a little bit. No, you might as well just tell them the whole truth about what you really believe. Get it done with. Stop wasting your time with these borderline relationships. And just, just clean house. Let everybody know exactly who you are and what you are and what you believe. And then you will be relegated to a very small group of people. But those people will be just as crazy as you are and you'll have the best time with them. You'll walk in agreement do the things of God. But not everybody wants that. Some people are still holding on to the concerns of man and they get with people who also have the concerns of man and they compare man concern notes with each other and are you concerned? I'm concerned. How about you? I'm concerned. About what? About these things. The things of man. Yes, me too. Good. You know anybody else concerned? Yes, we have several people. You have a whole social group of people concerned with the things of man. That's basically called the world. But he's called us out of that darkness. Because what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world by the concerns of man and lose his own soul? Your soul is so much more important than that. And as I said, he's not looking to punish you. That's what people, people think, well, to be a disciple means I must be punished. That is not, not what he's saying. It just means that you, you, you suffer. You take up that cross. You pay a price. Your reward goes way beyond anything someone in this life can get. Because if you lose your life for Him in the Gospel, you will save it for eternity. He wants you to have life and have it in abundance. But He wants it on His terms, by His definition. And that's the bottom line. Human concerns 
versus the concerns of God. And that's what we saw. The value of life. Number one, life comes through suffering. Just get over it, be mature, and say, yeah. That was the, the motto of the early church. Was only through much tribulation can we enter the kingdom of God. That's like they introduced them as, hey, hey, my name is John. Only through much tribulation can I enter the kingdom of God. It's like that was part of their psychology. They got it because they were in constant persecution. Number two, Jesus is not hiding the truth. Jesus, Jesus said it plainly. This is the way it's going to be. And he wants you to know that. And that's why all the gospel is about that. You know, stop copying and pasting gospel pieces for your likings. Read the whole thing. Take all of it, whether you like it or not. Take the whole thing. There's a lot more that you don't like than you like. I promise you that. You know it. You read that gospel. There's a whole bunch of red letters that offend you. And you would just rather that they not be there. And so you have actually, if you have a paper Bible, you actually have managed, you know how to grab it in the right places to make sure you get the happy passages so you can feel good about life. Jesus is not hiding the truth. Human concerns are not God's concerns. Bottom line, we must deny ourselves the true value of life. Jesus redefines it for us. And we see it as spiritual. It's not physical. There's no substitute. You're never going to be able to pay God off. God is not into having you pay for absolutions and be able to give Him pay. You can't bribe God into, oh, okay, in your case, because you gave this offering or you did this or, you, you know, okay. No, it doesn't work that way. We all have to do what He tells us. And we're not ashamed. Amen? Thank you for listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. If you would like to support our efforts, please consider making a donation at www.antiochchurch.sg. Thank you.